Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. As usual, we have another great guest today that came very highly recommended. Yes, and, uh, he did. We're excited to have Mr. Jack Stem on with us today. Welcome, Jack. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anytime Jeff Moulter recommends mm-hmm. someone, we know they're going to be a great guest. That's it. Well, he could be a client of mine, probably. <laughs> People don't know what you do yet. We might want to be careful with that one. So. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Jack, Wow. what we'll be okay. talking about today. I am Ohio's Peer Assistance Advisor for Nurse Anesthetists, been chair of their committee since 2005. I'm a recovering addict myself. I am coming up on 25 years clean and sober here not too long from now. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. I uh, did anesthesia for close to 14 years before my addiction started. I had a a chronic back problem, spondylolisthesis, and... um, Dealt with that for years, and in 1989, I guess all the stars aligned really well and uh, became dependent on my opiates and started to divert when I couldn't get prescriptions anymore. And then the next five years were just hell. I got sicker and sicker. I went to treatment. I didn't buy into any of it. And uh, after leaving the profession and being prosecuted for diverting drugs and getting divorced and it was a mess so things are really good now but it took a while so it's been an interesting 25 year trek yeah so sometimes it takes things to fall apart to rebuild and yes i saw a um little blurb on facebook the other day that said uh, the young man had taken a one of those glow sticks from his younger brother who was like four or five and the younger brother started crying and the older brother popped the stick so that it would glow and it's kind of like yeah sometimes you have to break it for it to show its hmm. its inner beauty so, so uh, you're I, a glow I, stick I, I kinda go jack? you're a glow stick jack 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, blue, there's a new blue. there's a new there's there's a new nickname for you, Jack, Jack the Glow Stick. Oh, man, <laughs> you're never gonna live this one down. Now, you know? No, if Walter <laughs> says something, you know, I'll have to deal with him. Oh. Yeah, advantage so so our topic today that that jack's going to be talking about is substance use disorders in the anesthesia provider and this is a huge topic Mm. i mean you know again not being from the crna community i don't understand the access and how all the drugs and so forth we work in the candy store yeah but you guys do now now i do remember and this is kind of i'm going to digress for just a moment here but i do remember my first kidney stone and I remember being 15 <laughs> you years old. You were 15? 15 years old. And I got up to go wow. to school that morning. I will never forget it. And, you know, my back hurt a little bit. And I got in the shower, and it just didn't get better. And I got out, and I was twisting. And and, and then it just hit. I mean, mm. it, I thought I was dying. My mom was home. She was getting ready to go to work. And I said, Mom. And I'm, I'm almost to the point I'm crying. It's hurting so mm. bad. I said, you need to call 911. Mm-hmm. So I'll never forget, the ambulance comes, the guy comes in, he evaluates me, he goes, oh, he's just got a kidney stone. Do you want to take him to the ER or should we? And uh, my mom mom said, well, you know, I guess I'll take him. So I'll never forget going into the ER and the lady asking all about the insurance stuff. And I'm like, oh, God, you're just going to get me back there. And uh, and so I remember laying on the the little table. And the nurse came in, and she goes, we're going to give you something to make you feel better. And she, mm. they gave it to me in my right buttock. I'll never forget mm-hmm. it. And it was like a little slice of heaven. The pain yeah. stopped. I went to sleep. Everything was so – I don't remember what it was, but it, I imagine that's what these anesthesia drugs do to you. But because I, I have never forgotten that feeling my Isn't whole life. Isn't that interesting? So, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of my story, but um, – well, tell us about substance abuse disorders. Are they diseases? I mean, I know this yeah. is this is a lot of uh, discussion goes all, on in the social arena. People think that it's all about willpower or lack thereof, or is right. it is is it a genetic based disease? So, family history is a, a an important clue, but here's the problem: nobody talks about this stuff no. in their family. And depending on which group you listen to, it's anywhere between 50 and 60% of your risk of developing a a substance use disorder is genetically based, which is true of a lot of our chronic diseases like diabetes, especially type 2. That's one of the best comparisons. But it's also what's going on in your life. Uh, It's your environment. So when I do my classes with my uh, clients – I always tell them GUS is the thing that leads to substance use disorders, G-U-S, genetics, using a mood-altering substance under stressful conditions. So, And it doesn't have to be recreational or experimental. Mine developed as a result of chronic pain, and I always took it as prescribed, but that last last year there in 1989, I couldn't quit. And uh, that was a... That was a very eye-opening experience. I worked in the emergency room, and I really hated people that came in searching for drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this, I would tell them, if you loved your family, you'd stop doing this. And then one day I discovered I loved my family, and I couldn't stop doing it. Wow. 
Yeah. But you mentioned that it's something we just don't talk about. Um, right. One time I asked a room full of CRNAs, in which CRNAs are all high achievers, peak performers. How many yep. in here are adult children of alcoholics? And nearly every hand in that room went up. Oh, wow. That's scary. That is scary. Wow. But in one sense, it, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Because right. we, adult children of alcoholics become peak performers. Yeah, overachievers. Overachievers. And what are CRNAs but a lot of overachievers? Hmm. Yep. That's very true. Now, yep. if you'll ask them if you've got them in a room by themselves and, you know, nobody's judging anybody, you, you ask. You ask sometimes. You'll be shocked. Wow. Jack, you know. Yeah, I, I finished second in my class when I was in anesthesia training. There and I always joke that I, there were only two people in the class, <laughs> um, but that, you know, um, it's, it's the top third of the graduating classes that have the highest risk. So it, being driven, yeah. having that genetics, and then being exposed to mood-altering substances, a couple of interesting studies out of South Florida, they tested the air at the head of the bed around the anesthetist, and they found microscopic amounts of opiates and benzos and mm-hmm. sedatives and and so you know if you're looking at the perfect storm of genetic vulnerability and inhaling or ingesting those drugs on a chronic basis even though they're microscopic amounts under stressful conditions that's what triggers the situation so it explains why we have a higher rate of addiction in anesthesia providers than in other professions now isn't it whenever this study that you just alluded to came out whenever they asked us to stop pushing our waste drugs into the needle bin um Mm -hmm. is that is that where that came from because i remember vaguely them telling us to stop doing that because it would aerosolize that plus the fact that patients are exhaling those drugs as well Hmm. microscopic amounts are coming out through the lungs so, yeah, and if I'm exposed to microscopic amounts over a 10 or 12 year period, and you know how stressful anesthesia can be, it explains why that's usually the time frame where people start to become addicted is 10 years or so. Right. So you it all kind of makes sense. Yeah. You alluded to the culture that we have today. Jack, two thirds of the people I put the sleeper on antidepressants do you classify those i guess as mood altering substances too well they are but they don't work in the same way mm-hmm. as till you until you drink wine with them <laughs> <laughs> bad combination uh, mm. but the problem that we have is the person who is genetically vulnerable does not respond appropriately right. to those medications they dump way more dopamine and as my client said, and even as Jeremy said, he remembers that first experience. Mm-hmm. A lot of my clients tell me that they, first time they used their drug of choice, they discovered God, they found Jesus, they uh, found the answer to the universe. They, it's the only love they ever had in their life. That's a, wow. that's a powerful hmm. experience. Yeah. And, you know, you talk to somebody like my brother and sister, neither one of them, they, they've done their fair share and uh, they're not. Addicts and I didn't drink till I was out of high school, and I've never 
smoked marijuana. I did not inhale. And, <laughs> that was really good, Jack. <laughs> and here I am, the addict. So it's just one of those things that it's a scary thing when you're not aware of what's going on. Yeah. And the really bad thing is the person who has this disease typically does not recognize it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the part of the brain, the limbic system, it takes over that part, which is where emotions live, but it's also where our survival mechanisms live. And the importance of an activity on a survival level, instinctive level, is determined by dopamine. So if I engage in some sort of a um, – survival mechanism like eating food drinking water especially if i'm really really hungry or really thirsty and i release excessive amounts of dopamine that gives my brain the chance to say pay attention to what's going on here because next time you're in this situation there will be food or water or if you have sex you know i tell them sex is a survival instinct and the guys in the class typically say see i knew if i didn't have sex i'd die and that's not <laughs> what i'm saying it, it keeps the human race going so we're driven to do that. So when we do engage in sexual activity, we dump dopamine. Mm -hmm. So when you take a drug and your genetic makeup allows you to dump more dopamine than those survival instincts, guess what happens? Your limbic system starts to see drug use as the survival mechanism. Wow. Wow. So here's the thing. If at an instinctive level, my brain believes that if I don't have the drug, I'm going to die. What are you willing to do to stay alive? Ooh. Pretty much anything. Anything. Right. Right. Which explains why people who get arrested multiple times and know that if they're going to have a positive drug screen when they see their probation officer, they're going to go to jail for another two or three years. People say, well, why don't you just not use? Well, as stress rises and we start to go into instinctive behaviors, guess what? You My instinctive more. behavior is a, a survival. So it yeah, it's like, okay, I got to do the drug to stay alive. Wow. Hey, Jack, what are, what are some of the signs that, you know, maybe a colleague may be struggling with an SUD? That's a good question. Because when I was going through it, I lost uh, close to 50 pounds in five months. Wow. And no one said a word to me. Do you and, have cancer? Uh, Nobody said anything? Didn't say a word. Oh. And the interesting thing is I ended up having a semi-emergent spinal fusion because I developed foot drop. And I was off for five months. And when I came back, I hadn't thought about using anything for those five months. But as soon as I walked in the operating room, my brain said, oh, yeah, here we go. And I had this massive uh, trigger and by the end of the week, I had plans on how I was going to control things this time. And when the kids went off to swimming lessons, Daddy took a hit and uh, overdosed. And fortunately, the four-year-old forgot her swimsuit and came in to give it and gave uh, Daddy a kiss and goes out and tells Mommy, Daddy's a funny color. Oh, my God. So, yeah. And uh, so when I went to the hospital after the OD, they admitted me, and I knew I was going to have to face this. So I called my best friend working in uh, OB at the time and, and asked him to come up to the room at like three o'clock in the morning. And he came up and I said, Bob, I'm addicted to fentanyl. And he said, thank God. And I was stumped. I said, what do you mean? Dude, we thought you had cancer or AIDS. Uh, wow. And I'm thinking to myself, so now you thought I had a fatal disease and didn't say anything to me? Right. And What's you're a bunch of nurses. That? You're a bunch of nurses. 
Right. Wow. Surgeons, nurses. So some of the behaviors, uh, mood swings, personality changes. I was kind of the guy that always had a good time in the operating room and suddenly I wasn't the fun dude anymore. I just needed to get in, get out and do my thing. Work absences, a lot of physical complaints, underperformance, start to get argumentative with some of the authority figures in the place. Long sleeves when not appropriate. I'm the kind of guy that sweats like crazy if it's above 40 degrees. And now I'm starting to wear long sleeve warm-up jackets and never rolling up the sleeves because I had track marks. Sometimes memory loss. You know, you'll be in a blackout state and somebody will be talking to you and the next day you don't remember any of it. Refuses to do a drug screen. Uh, Has slurred speech. Uh, if it's alcohol, they you can smell alcohol in their breath. They might have uh, bloodshot eyes, glassy eyes, those kinds of things. Wow. So what do you do if you suspect that a colleague has a substance abuse disorder? That's a good question because there's no really great answer for that. One of the things that as peer advisors we recommend is that if you suspect it, start to kind of gather information. Mm-hmm. Because here's the problem you run into. If you go in and directly confront somebody who's really struggling, they become afraid. They're afraid they're going to get caught, and sometimes um, they overdose. We got a call one time on our hotline where she called, and if somebody didn't answer, she was going to drive her car into a bridge button. Mm-hmm. So the fact that somebody answered the phone, it was like, Thank goodness. So the problem you run into is if you don't have your plan together and have a place where they can go to treatment or be safe, if you confront them, negative things have a tendency to happen. They quit, they disappear, they run, or sometimes they end up dead. Well, wow, but what if you're wrong? (laughs) I mean, do you not think that crosses people's minds? I'm, I'm going to accuse somebody of this, and I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, you're between a rock and a hard place in my mind. If you bring it up and it's true, then they may do something very negative. But if you bring it up and you're wrong, I mean, well, that's that's one of those reasons where you start to gather information. You know, are they showing up on days off, which I did because that's where my drug source was. And if I was off three or four day weekend, I probably couldn't make it through. So I'd show up at the hospital. Um, they were like, "What's what are you doing here, man? Oh, I had a difficult case yesterday, and I'm checking in on the patient. I was actually there to see if I could get some fentanyl. Mm. But you start to gather that information, and the department should have policies in place that describe this on how to deal with it, which the AANA's peer assistance website has tons of information. Unfortunately, we just don't have enough time to, to do that in a 30-minute spot. But you, you document you know, uh, are they taking out more meds and supposedly administering three times as much opiates as everybody else in the department? That's a pretty good sign that there's something going on. Have syringes that are sent back to the pharmacy tested for, is it really fentanyl? And is it really the concentration it's supposed to be? Or is it diluted? Is it just saline? And if you have policies in place, you follow those policies. But, But the biggest thing that I would recommend is if you suspect somebody is struggling, call the AANA hotline. So what are the ways that they hide 
their substance abuse disorder. You just alluded to one. They dilute the fentanyl. I mean, I've never recognized that a colleague was using in my workplace. My right. Whenever I was president of my state board, we had somebody on the board that was using. Of course, I didn't work with them, and I didn't know. And then looking back, I recognized mm. some things. But I truly, it never crossed my mind. And it's well, the person I least yeah. expected. Well, and that's the that. problem. Like I said, it's usually the, the high achievers and everybody likes them and they've worked well. They usually get more request cases in, in the department than anybody else. I mean, they're, they're clearly outstanding providers. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have to be to cover your tracks, I would think. Yeah. Yes. But so um, what are some of the exact ways that, that they hide it? I'm just curious myself yeah one of the things they do is they may offer a lot of breaks to people mm-hmm. and then when they go in they switch out syringes okay. so if you somebody gave you a break and patient appears to be getting light and you administer some fentanyl or sufentanyl and nothing happens it's kind of like what's going on here that that doesn't make sense frequent bathroom breaks mm-hmm. especially if you're using a short acting drug like fentanyl you you're going to have to use it frequently to prevent withdrawal. They show up early and stay late. They don't want anybody else coming in after them and taking care of their, I'll clean up your meds, don't worry about it. Yeah, it, it's getting harder. I mean, back in the day when I was doing this 25 years ago, 30 years ago, actually, we didn't have electronic medication dispensers and tracking and that kind of stuff. So we recommend as peer assistance advisors that you Send all your meds back to the pharmacy and let them waste it. And then the pharmacy should do random testing of drugs to come back to see if anything has been altered. That's probably the biggest way. Mm -hmm. And I think the personality change is huge because you can't have this disease and, and be getting sicker and sicker without personality changes. Yeah. They're not them. You know, that's what they kept saying. He just wasn't himself. It wasn't Jack. It wasn't Jack. But nobody said anything because they weren't sure what to do or what to say, and they so they didn't say anything. Yeah. Jack, are there resources out there for people to go to anesthesia schools or places of employment to kind of talk about peer assistance and maybe some of these things, the signs, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, and how to handle these situations? I mean, I just think that – you know, we're hearing more and more about this in our everyday lives, and I imagine in the anesthesia world, mm-hmm. it comes up more than than would be comfortable if patients knew about it. So, right. We, as a peer assistance committee at the A and A, we have peer assistance advisors in all fifty states. So these are people who either are in recovery and are really well versed or people who know someone and uh, maybe lost a colleague or a family member and really got interested in trying to um, help people that are struggling with this. Here in Ohio, since 2005, I've been going to all the anesthesia programs every year. We have seven, and I hit every program and do a three to four hour presentation to the incoming students, and then a couple of the programs have me come back senior year where they have family members come in and uh, we include them in the presentation as well because there's a good chance the family's going to see somebody struggling before somebody at work sees it right yeah 
but yeah, uh, it, it doesn't matter what state you're in. If you contact the state peer advisor in your home state and talk to them, I guarantee you they will be more than happy to come and do presentations to students, to faculty, to anesthesia departments. I've done a couple of debriefings where somebody was discovered to, to be diverting and they went off to treatment and the staff was really struggling. So um, they called and said, hey, can you come in and just answer some questions? So, yeah, it's... Um, what is the process whenever somebody gets caught diverting? I mean, I don't even know. Well, that. it depends. If your state has a decent alternative to discipline program, if they are reported to that program either by a colleague or themselves, they can enter treatment. They surrender their license for a period of time, depending on what state. They um, complete treatment, and then they are monitored by this alternative discipline program. They have to do random drug screens. They Any prescriptions they get, they have to send copies to their monitoring agent. They have random visits. And they uh, must be out of the anesthesia clinical area for a minimum of a year while they work on their recovery. And then we have reentry criteria that's on the website. And everything we're talking about here is on the ANA website under peer assistance. But yeah, we have criteria. Then sometimes they recommend that you don't go back to anesthesia. Maybe you teach, maybe you go into another profession. That's what I ended up doing. And unfortunately, I didn't have a, I'm a diploma nurse and a diploma anesthetist. That's how old I am. So my first job after I left was working at a bowling alley. I made $7.50 an hour. But I understand you're a pretty good bowler. Uh, yeah, I, uh, it's genetic too, I think. <laughs> I got one perfect game. Right. Um, my brother's got like eight or nine. My nephew's got double digits, 10, 12, 14, 300 games. My dad had a 290 when he was in his 70s, so it's genetic. Wow. It really is genetic. Yeah. 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 But, you know, and I tried selling cars. I worked at a fish market. The best job I had before I got into some consulting was working at a, um, landscaping company and i actually worked with my future son-in-law there for three years and i really got to know the guy pretty well and he's he's a he's an upstanding young in fact i told my daughter if you guys get divorced i'm keeping him <laughs> <laughs> but no i mean it's it, but but my case was mishandled not only by me but by everybody around me because they never reported me I think they thought they were doing me a favor, which is not a favor, because once I get reported, I have to I have to do things in order to keep my license, stay out of jail. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Right. Keep your family and, and everything. Else. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this I lost my career in anesthesia. I ended up divorced. The good news is that my ex and I are good friends and. Our kids are doing well, uh, although I do have a daughter that is in recovery as well. She was molested as a child and ended up being raped in college, and we didn't know any of that. All we knew is that she was smoking pot and doing cocaine and starting to drink a lot, and that's wow. where the PTSD and the stress comes in. So I was very grateful uh, that I went through all of this because if I had not and she had developed her SUD, I would not have handled that well. I would have blown it. Yeah. 
So I'm very grateful to be where I am today, and I never thought that I would say that, but life doesn't get any better than it is for me right now. Yeah. Well, Jack, do you have any recommendations maybe for folks that have been through this and now they're trying to return to practice after treatment Any because you've been doing this for a long time? Look at your motivation, first of all. Um, my motivation was my whole identity was tied up in being a nurse anesthetist. If I wasn't a nurse anesthetist, what was I? And so that drove me to try to get back way too soon. Take your time, see if maybe you can do some teaching at the university instead of going back into the clinical area and, and really work on your recovery because the thing that's gonna allow you to get back and be safe is to have a solid recovery program. And as I tell my clients all the time, now that I'm a chemical dependency counselor, Recovery is not about not using drugs. It's about creating a life that is worthwhile and doesn't require me to uh, use mood-altering substances. So it's stress management and really looking at what's important, kids, family, community, those kinds of things. And if you're really working a solid program and you've got a good sponsor or mentor or coach or whatever you want to call them, bounce things off of them, they usually have a much more unemotional view of the situation. That's the problem that that I had is I was emotionally involved in the outcome and I wasn't always making good decisions. So I've had some really good sponsors in my time. Um, Art Zwirling was one of those guys that I spent a lot of time on the phone with uh, early as a peer advisor. We really miss him. Yes, but solid can. recovery allows you to get back. And people can contact me. We have an online community called Anesthetists in Recovery where we can post questions and get feedback. And Parkdale Center um, has a uh, weekly online video AANA meeting, I guess you would call it, for people who have been through treatment at Parkdale plus uh, in recovery. So we've got a lot of resources for people available. If you can find a job where you don't have to get back to anesthesia immediately, then I always recommend just take your time. There's no rush. Yeah. So you said that it was typically a year, but what I'm hearing you say is longer may be better. Yeah, and what we know is that the longer I'm involved in treatment, and the longer I continue to participate in recovery activities, the better chance I have of staying clean and sober. See, the problem we had, I think in the past we had was we treated addiction like a broken leg. You know, you went into treatment for 30 days, you got out, and everything's going to be great. Well, that's not true. This is like having type 2 diabetes. It's genetically based. Mm-hmm. It was lifestyle-induced, and I have to change my lifestyle to keep my diabetes in check. So I have to change my lifestyle to keep my substance use disorder in check. Wow. So I also heard you talking about you're a counselor. So if anybody listens to this and would like to get in touch with you, or if they think they've got a problem, is Mm -hmm. that an option for them to get in touch with you, Jack? Well, they can. I would probably end up referring them to somebody else because Lord knows I'm busy enough as it is, but I'm always available to chit chat. It doesn't matter the time of the day or night. I, any phone call that I get, I take. 
And if I can't answer the phone, leave the message and I will get back to you generally within 12 to 24 hours. But we do have an 800 number that is answered 24 hours a day, seven days a week by trained professionals. And that number is 800-654-5167. And typically what happens when you call that number is they're going to ask is it you? Is it a colleague? Is it a family member? What's going on? What do you think's happening? And then they would start to make referrals, give them options. You can come to this treatment center, go to that. Where are you in the country? There's treatment available at this place. And then we follow up with them as peer assistance advisors to make sure that they're not struggling and that they're following through on the things they need to follow through on. Yeah. But yeah, I'm always available. Well, Jack, as we kind of wrap this up, is there anything you want would like to conclude on and maybe get across to our audience? Well, one of the things that I tell my clients all the time is that we are not bad people trying to become good people. We have a serious disease that if we don't get it in check, it's going to kill us. And I think the biggest deterrent to getting help is the stigma that's associated with the disease. Uh, too many people believe that if you're just weak don't have enough willpower, don't care about your family, and none of that's true. The brain is significantly altered where we make poor choices because our brain's not functioning the way it's supposed to. There's help. There's hope. As long as you're breathing, there's hope. Yeah. Recovery's possible. I think that's a very appropriate end on Jack. We want to thank you. Thanks for all the work that you do helping CRNAs out there and, um, you know, helping people get through probably one of the roughest times in their life. And, um, and in sharing, you've been a CRNA for a long time and I saw your eyebrows go up a lot of the stuff that Jack said. And, you know, what I think when you do that, mm-hmm. someone who has been at the top of the profession and, and knows so much about this industry, that tells me that the average CRNA out there doesn't know a lot about this issue. Yes. No, I agree. And it goes back to exactly what Jack said. People just don't talk about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's our our dirty little secret that a lot of other people have, but it's just, we just want to keep our dirty little secret. Though I can say, you know, we as a profession brought it to the front, forefront, oh, yeah. after Jan Stewart. And Jan Stewart's the first person who appointed me to a committee. An AA really? committee. Yes, she sure was. Yeah. And I had no idea. Mm. You know, yeah. I, I would go to board meetings. I would go to all of these meetings. And I was in her room. I would I no idea. Wow. No. Yeah. Well, I think her daughter, Sarah, was key in that whole situation to make sure that we didn't cover anything up. And, uh, and as you said, we as a profession are light years ahead of all other healthcare professions when it comes to peer assistance and helping each other out. I mean, we've been doing this since 1988 and there's a lot of professions that still don't have any help. So it's just, um, we're as sick as our secrets. That's what you hear at our Mm, sober support groups all the time. And when we keep secrets, we, people die. Yeah. Wow. Well, Jack, I'm thank tired you. of watching people die. Oh. Yeah. yeah. 
thank you again, Jack and, and Sharon. Well, I think I think that's a wrap. I and think so. We want to thank Jack for being here with us. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show or want to know more, check out our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, leave us a positive review. <laughs> Until next time. It's a wrap. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.